0: This Sunday, you may have noticed as you looked in your bulletin this morning, is Christ the King Sunday and the liturgical calendar that we keep and that others around the globe keep. Christ the King Sunday is the last Sunday of the church year, right? which means that next Sunday, the first Sunday in Advent, is the beginning of a new liturgical calendar year for us. Christ the King continues with some of the themes that we explored back the end of May early June whenever it was when we remembered the ascension right there's a feast day of the ascension and often the sunday after the feast day we remember the ascension of Christ when he went up into heaven and was enthroned seated at the right hand of God the Father almighty we continue to remember as the creed tells us this morning and he shall come again to judge both the living and the dead. This morning we remember the enthronement of Christ, that he is indeed seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The Lord is sovereign, seated on his throne, and he is in control. But beyond that, he's coming again, and that means something for us. The Sunday also begins that work of preparing us for Advent. Advent is a season both of looking backward and looking forward. We look back and we remember the people of God as they waited in exile, longing for the promised Messiah, the anointed son of David, who would come and sit upon the throne and usher in a reign of righteousness and justice forever and ever. We remember their longing. But we're on a different side of the advent of Jesus who came so many years ago, an infant, In a stall, Jesus grew to be a man good stature. Standing before the Lord, he was upright. He lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death of substitution in our behalf. He rose again and has ascended into the right hand of God the Father and now we're waiting for him to come again. And so in Advent, we also look forward because we still live in a world that is broken and marred because of sin and the fall, things are not as they should be, and they will not be as they should be until King Jesus comes again. This morning, we are focusing on that second coming of the King Jesus, which is spoken about in the parable that was read in Luke chapter 19 this morning. See, I included the first pericope of Luke 19 this morning because it gives us an important context to understand the rest of the parable. See, Jesus is coming his way south. He's been up north, right, in Galilee. He's making his way south, heading towards Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And he stops on this particular occasion in Jericho. Now, Jericho was a very familiar city to first century believers. And for many of us who were raised in the church, Jericho is still familiar, right? If we go way back to the Pentateuch, And we go one book forward into Joshua. Joshua leads the armies into the promised land to the city of Jericho. And what happens? The walls come tumbling down. That city would remind everyone of the power of God coming into a world that has denied him. So Jesus comes into Jericho, one day's journey away from Jerusalem, heading in for the Passover with great anticipation. Everybody believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the son of David, coming to reign. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to throw out the Romans, and everything's going to be good and right again. So as Jesus marches into Jericho, he's greeted by a crowd with a procession and a parade. And our pericope tells us that Zacchaeus, the tax collector, even wished to see him. Now Zacchaeus was a very unpopular man. He indeed was a wicked man who had betrayed every one of his neighbors. He collaborated with the Romans. He collected taxes on behalf of Caesar, which we think of taxes as a rather unpleasant thing. It's nothing compared to what the Judeans had to deal with. So what would happen is Caesar would decide this is the amount of money that I want to raise to build this building or to go to this war. Go out and raise this amount of money. And Zacchaeus would go. Door to door, knocking on the door, with a cadre of Roman soldiers following behind him, and he would demand the amount that Caesar demanded, and then just a little bit on the top for himself. Now, if you were a citizen of Jericho, and Zacchaeus came and knocked on your door, and he demanded money that you didn't quite have, well, then he would have his soldiers go into your house and collect anything of value that might add up to what you owe If you didn't have anything particular of value, but you had sons or daughters, they might be taken away. Your daughters would be given as prostitutes to Roman soldiers. Your sons would be given as slaves. Zacchaeus was a Jew who worked for the Romans, and he was very unpopular among his Jewish neighbors, as you would imagine. He was also a man of short stature, and nobody was going to make way for Zacchaeus in the midst of the crowd as Jesus was marching through town, so Zacchaeus climbed up into the sycamore so that he could get a view. And as Jesus marches on by, he takes note of Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come down because today I'm going to have dinner at your home. Friends, this is scandalous, beyond scandalous. It's as if Jesus came to America today, and rather than inviting Billy Graham to be you know, company with him at his hotel, or rather than inviting Archbishop Beach to meet with him for lunch, instead he decides to go to the house of Hugh Hefner. And just as the people of Jericho, we too would grumble. Jesus, do you know this man? Do you understand how he's made his money? Why are you dining in his home? Jesus was aware. He was God. He knew Zacchaeus' sins and his history. Fortunately, in this moment, Zacchaeus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was also made aware of his transgressions and was led to repentance so that he said, not only will I give back every cent that I've taken and defrauded from my neighbors, but I'm going to pay it back fourfold. Well, friends, that meant Zacchaeus was going to go bankrupt. Everything that he had made for himself, cheating and defrauding his neighbors, he was going to lose, and then some. What would inspire a person to do such a thing? See, Zacchaeus knew who Jesus was. And he knew that Jesus was coming to change this world and to turn it upside down or rather right side up again. And for him to be a part of Jesus' kingdom meant more than all of the gold and wealth that he had acquired defrauding his neighbors. So he gave it up. And Jesus quotes from what was our Old Testament lesson today in Ezekiel 34 where God speaks against the shepherds of Israel in the time of exile. He says that the priests and the prophets and the teachers of the law had all made themselves fat off of the people. They took the tithe and they made themselves wealthy, but they forgot to go after the lost sheep of Israel. And so in Ezekiel 34, the Lord says, I myself will come. I will seek out and save the lost. And Jesus quotes that passage when Zacchaeus repents and follows after him. So Jesus' audience his disciples, and all of the people of Jericho would have known it's happening. The Messiah is coming. He's heading to Jerusalem. And so that's the beginning of our parable today. As they're leaving Jericho on that day's march towards Jerusalem, Jesus overhears his disciples, and they have great expectations of what is to come in the next two days. And Jesus tells them a parable of the ruler leaving coins that he could go and secure for himself a kingdom. Now, friends, to Jesus' original audience, this story would have been very familiar. In fact, it had happened twice in the last 75 years. First, it had happened when Herod the Great fought on behalf of Mark Antony as the Romans conquered Judea. Mark Antony ended up making Herod and his brother tetrarchs, and Herod later went to Rome to the Senate to be made king over all of Judea. Well, Herod was a descendant, not of the Jews, but of who? The Edomites. Right? If we go back to Genesis, there's this story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Jacob became Israel, and the descendants of Esau became the Edomites. And that was the lineage of Herod the Great. And I tell you what, The Jews of Judea did not want an Edomite to be their king. And yet Herod the Great went. A delegation of Israelites followed him to Rome. They made their case. They said, we don't want this man to be our king. The Senate made Herod the Great King. And when he came back to Judea, guess what he did? He cleaned house. He killed thousands upon thousands upon thousands. In fact, we have records from Josephus, the first century historian who writes of how bloodthirsty Herod the Great was in executing vengeance against his enemies. When Herod the Great died in four common era, right around the time that Jesus was a young little boy, he left the kingdom to two different sons. which created all kinds of confusion. Herod Archelaus and Herod Antipas. And the two raised armies and fought against each other. They ended up going back to Rome, this time under Caesar Augustus to see who would be made king over Judea. Caesar granted it to Herod Archelaus, who came back and once again executed a vengeance upon anyone who was not for his right to be king. He killed them, he stole their property, he burned their houses and their fields, and left absolutely nothing for them. Isn't it interesting that as Jesus is talking about his reign and his kingdom, he uses them as an example. I believe what we have in this parable are two philosophies. The philosophy of the wicked servant and the philosophy of the good servants. The wicked servant is living by a philosophy that says nothing invested, nothing lost. The good servants, however, are living by a philosophy that says nothing ventured, everything lost. We can begin to see which philosophy worked out. If We look first at the wicked servant. We see He took the coin that his master gave to him. He folded it in a handkerchief and did absolutely nothing with it. And when the king came back with the right to the throne, he gives it right back to the king and says, see Lord, I was just afraid that I would lose the coin. Kenneth Bailey, who is a commentator who has spent many decades living in the Middle East, has written a commentary on the parables of Jesus called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. I'm very indebted to his commentary because it's given me a completely new understanding of this parable and so many others. See, when I was growing up in church, I used to hear this parable read, and the lesson was that we're supposed to be wise stewards of the things that God gives to us. Has anybody else heard that before? Okay. Well, you know, the Bible definitely says in other places that we should be wise stewards of the things that the Lord gives to us, but that is not what Jesus is saying to us in this parable today. In fact... Again, the historic context is very helpful to us because when Herod the Great and Herod Archelaus left to go and secure the kingdom for themselves, they would have had coins minted as a sign to everybody that they're coming back, that they're the legitimate ruler. Well, does anybody have a coin in their pocket, in their purse, close by? You've probably spent enough of them in your years that you know what gets printed on the face of a coin. The image of the person in authority. Whenever you go over to England and you look at a, a sterling pound, whose image is upon that coin? Queen Elizabeth. And it was exactly the same in the first century. So Herod would have had his image placed, planted upon those coins. And had he given them to his servants and to his followers and told them, I want you to go and do business with this money. Well, they were going to go out into a marketplace that was ruled by anarchy. There was no government whatsoever. And in the midst of that anarchy, there was Herod who had a claim to the throne, and there were a lot of people who hated him. Can you imagine going out into the marketplace and buying your fabric and your fruits and the things that you need to take back home, and when the time comes to exchange money, you hand over a coin, and it's Herod's image on the coin. To do that would be to make a profound statement to a world and a marketplace that hated Herod the king. It would say, he is the king. He is coming back. You put your life at risk spending such a coin in the marketplace. Well, the servant thinks that he's really figured it out. If he doesn't go in the marketplace and doesn't spend it, he can hide the coin away. He can tell the master, I'm just scared that you know I might lose it, and then you'd be mad so here's your coin back, no, no harm, no foul, right? But then he proceeds further to insult the master. One, he's telling him, so I know that you gave me this coin and you wanted me to do business with it, but I'm not sure that your finances are really together enough that you can handle losing this coin. In a Middle Eastern context, that is profoundly insulting to somebody The second thing is that the servant is failing to recognize his own place in the economy. The word given to us in the Greek in the New Testament is doulos. What does doulos mean in Greek? Bond servant or slave. See, the master gave these coins not just to anybody, but to somebody whose life belonged to him in the first place. He gave them the coin. And what else did the master say? Did the master say... When I come back, I want you to have made interest on this money. What does he say in verse 13? I want you to do business. Well, that doesn't mean I want to see interest on it. What he's saying is, I want you to go out there and have the guts to show people this coin and let them know you belong to me and I'm coming back. The servant insults his master's wealth, he insults his intelligence. And then he insults him personally in his character by saying, I knew that you reap what you didn't sow. You're a privileged little brat. The master doesn't take terribly kindly to that point. Especially because, again, this was his slave telling him this. Whose life belonged to the master. Some of you, I think, have heard the name of of a fellow John Calvin. I don't know who that is. Magisterial reformer from the 16th century. John Calvin fled from France um, under under persecution, and he was making his way towards Strasbourg. But on his way to Strasbourg, he stopped in Geneva overnight, and in a pub, he ran into this fellow, William Farrell. And William Farrell says, oh, you're John Calvin. You're the guy who's written the little golden booklet, the pamphlet about what is the gospel, and what does it mean to be a Christian. Oh, that's wonderful. We need you here in Geneva. In fact, William Farrell points his finger at John Calvin and says, God demands that you stay in Geneva and reform this church. Well, what was he to do? Calvin stayed. He unpacked his bags and he began the work of reforming the church in Geneva. Only a couple of years went by and he and William continued to run their heads against a wall with the council of Geneva. There were limits to how much change the church was willing to tolerate. We don't know anything about that here. But the council ended up running Calvin and Farrell out of town. And so Calvin merrily packed his bags and went on his way to Strasbourg where he intended to go all along. Started writing commentaries. He pastored. He started a seminary. He was loving his work. A couple of years went by and he received a letter from Geneva. And the council of Geneva said, uh, We think we've made a terrible mistake. Please come back. We really need your help. And Calvin one one thinks with great joy, probably wrote that letter back and said, oh, thanks, I'm good. <laughs> so the council at Geneva wrote him again, please, we need you to come. The Catholic Church is trying to get us back. They're sending their armies. We need somebody who can represent us. And again, Calvin says, no, I'm sorry. I'm very busy up here in Strasbourg, but God bless you. I'll pray for you. So then the council at Geneva sent letters to all of the other reformed cities in the Swiss cantons. And those city councils wrote letters to Calvin. And finally, it was a letter from William Farrell, the man who eventually convinced Calvin to stay in Geneva the first time. And Farrell once again points his finger in the letter at Calvin and says, God demands that you go back to Geneva and continue the work that you began. And Calvin writes his response to William Farrell, and he says, you just don't understand. When I was in Geneva, it was bad. Every single morning I woke up and I just wished I was dead. It was bad. I, nothing in the world would be less appealing to me than to go back to Geneva. Period. End of paragraph. And then he says, but when I remember that I am not my own, I lift up my heart as a sacrifice to God, prompt and sincerely. Calvin packed his bags and went back to Geneva and continued the work. See, the wicked servant didn't know whose he was. Not so. The good servants, they lived by a different philosophy that said nothing ventured, everything lost. They realized that this was a test from the master. He was going away. He gave them the coin. He wanted them to go out and show themselves faithful. To let everybody in the world know, I belong to the king. And he is coming back. They knew that if they failed to go out and represent the king in the marketplace, he would come back with vengeance. Nothing ventured. Everything lost. When the king returns, we do see the judgments of the king. He takes away the coin from the wicked servant. He gives it to his faithful servants. He casts out the wicked servant outside of the city gates, And he tells his soldiers, everyone who was against my reign will be slaughtered and placed upon the heap and burned. His judgment and wrath are severe. And yet, unto his faithful servants, his mercy is unbelievable. The first servant comes back and he says, Lord, I've taken your one mina and I've done business during the time that you were away and here with that one mina, I've made 10 minas more in business, which means to say this guy went out and worked hard. He let everybody know he belonged to the master, and he believed the master was coming back. And the master says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful in a little, I will make you master over much. So it would be like if you gave your kids or your grandkids a $100 bill, and you came back four years later, and they said, I've taken your $100, and I've made a $1,000 with it. And then you say, good job. I'm going to make you the governor of the state of Missouri. That's how ridiculous this is. One mina, and now this man is the ruler of ten cities. A second servant comes, and he says, Lord, I've taken your one mina, and I've done business out in the world, and I've made five minas more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant, because you've been faithful in a little. I'll make you master over much. You're going to rule over five cities. Your other grandkids like that. $100 and made $500, and now you're going to let them be the mayor of St. Louis. See, God's grace is extravagant unto his faithful servants who look to him as Lord, who wait upon his return. See, but it's all an attitude issue. The first servant thought about himself what could he lose if this goes awry? The good servants. Weren't worried about what they might lose. They thought about all that they could gain. When my father was a young man in his early 20s, he graduated high school, was working full-time, and living in his parents' home. He had a lot of disposable income. And he and his best friend, Eddie, liked to drag race. Eddie had a car. Dad would go over to Eddie's house after work, and they'd deposit their paychecks, and they'd buy parts to put in this car. They had a Barracuda with a Hemi. And they souped up that car, and every weekend they'd take it out to the drag strip, and they'd run the car at the race. Well, this was during Vietnam, and Eddie's draft number got called up, and Eddie had to go away to basic training. It was Eddie's car that they'd been driving, and so my dad just thought, well, I guess that's the end of drag racing. I need to find a new hobby. A couple weeks went by, and the phone rings, and Eddie's dad, Mr. Goddard, is on the line. And he says, Bill, Bill's my dad. Bill, there's a race happening down at the drag strip next weekend. My dad says, yes, Mr. Goddard, there sure is. Mr. Goddard says, so you're going to drive? And my dad says, well, no, I don't, I don't have a car to drive. Mr. Goddard says, well, you're going to drive Eddie's car, and I'm going to be your pit crew. My dad says, I can't drive Eddie's car. That's, that's Eddie's car. Mr. Goddard says, well, my name's on the title. So you're going to drive a car at the race, and I'm going to be your pit crew. So they go out that weekend and they raced. And after the races, Mr. Goddard went home and that evening he got a phone call from his son at basic training. And the only thing that Mr. Goddard wanted to talk about is how Bill took your car out to the drag strip and beat all your time records. Poor guy, he's stuck at basic training. And so as soon as he finishes basic training and he gets a little bit of leave before he's got to go, what do you think he does? He comes home and he takes the car out to the drag strip because he wants to see if he can get those times. And sure enough, he can't. So he calls my dad and he calls him and he pesters him for the better part of a week and a half. Just keeps calling, keeps pestering, Bill, how would you get these times on my car? Are you doing something different with the fuel? Is it when you're pushing on the accelerator? Is it when you're shifting? How are you getting these times? And after more than a week of being pestered, my dad finally says, Eddie. I give up. Do you want to know how I got these times on your car? And he says, yes, I've got to know. Eddie, it's not my car. I don't care if I break it. (laughs) Friends, there's a freedom that comes when we recognize we are not our own. Just like John Calvin, we have things set before us that the Lord Jesus king is calling us to do until he comes again that we do not want to do. And yet it's not ours. Our very lives are not our own. And that sets us free to go out in ways that may seem terrifying and reckless. But the Lord Jesus hasn't told us he wants to come and show him all of the wonderful things we accomplished. Lord Jesus says, I want you to go out and do work in my name. There's a difference. If we're focused on failure and loss, it's going to limit what we're able and willing to do. But if our focus is faithfulness, well, as the Apostle Paul says to us, I can do so many great things through the Lord who strengthens me. So let's talk about some application here. What is The Lord asking of you, what has he given to you? Perhaps the Lord has blessed you financially and he's asking you to be more generous in giving to the church, to his mission in the world around us. Perhaps you're not quite making that tie. Maybe the Lord Jesus is saying, this is what I've given to you and I want to bless you and I want to bless what I've given to you. It's not yours. Go do business. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Perhaps it's something that you have that you hold dear, maybe your house, and the Lord is calling you to open up your doors and to show hospitality to those who are less fortunate than yourselves. Perhaps it's your time. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to sacrifice some of the things that you would like to do with your time so that you can go and be about his business until he comes again. Perhaps it's your very life and your heart that the Lord Jesus has given to you he wants you to go out and to use in his name for his sake. So many of us have our closed system of friends and family that we know and love and invest in. But it's hard to make space for new people. Perhaps the Lord is telling you, I want you to open your heart. Go, knock on your neighbor's door. Invite them to your home for dinner. Share the gospel with them. The Lord Jesus, until he comes again, has told us to be about his work. He said, as we go about, what are we to do? Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all of the things that he has commanded of us. Friends, I tell you that the King is coming. Let us be found faithful. Amen.